Well, hello. Uh, my name is Jacob Rutledge, and I am the minister for the church in Dripping Springs, Texas, uh, west of Austin. It's so good to uh, be here with you uh, through this means uh, for our, my uh, McDermott Road family. Uh, I'm so blessed that I can spend this time together with you. I wish that I wish that we could spend time together. I wish that our uh, time together uh, could be in person. But I am thankful for the technology that we have. And so we can spend an opportunity studying God's Word and opening up Scripture to talk a little bit tonight about the book of 1 Corinthians, a specific chapter, an important chapter, maybe a chapter that many of you are familiar with, so that we can learn what God has to tell us about His will for our life. But before we do that, I want you to think about a man that many of us know, that I know very well, or at least I feel like I know very well, because I grew up watching his show Probably many of you did too, and his name was Mr. Rogers. Now, Mr. Rogers, for many, embodied what it meant to be loving and what it meant to be kind to those around you. In fact, he was so loving, he was so kind, he drew so many people, so many admirers through the years. And I remember recently on a, on a plane trip back uh, from New York, I, I know that that uh, it seems crazy in the, t- the times that we're in, not only a plane trip, but coming back from New York. But, but on a recent uh, plane trip back from New York, uh, there was a movie on that I've been wanting to watch that was on the life of Mr. Rogers, who was played by Tom Hanks. I believe it was called A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. I loved it. I really enjoyed it. And it got me thinking once again about some things that I've learned about Mr. Rogers over the years. And one of my favorite facts about him was how he always liked to keep his weight at 143 pounds. And the reason for that was because it represented numerically the most important phrase in his life. One stood for I. Four stood for L-O-V-E, love. And three stood for Y-O-U. I love you. 143. See, love for Mr. Rogers was such an important part of who he was that it was embedded and ingrained in his own body, literally. He wanted it to be represented in that way. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think I take love nearly as seriously as I should. Certainly not as seriously as Mr. Rogers. And a lot of people, as I mentioned earlier, were drawn to Mr. Rogers. Uh, they, they, they saw him as the embodiment of love and kindness. But as a devoted Christian man, Mr. Rogers was actually already following a path that was laid out for him by the one individual who was the true embodiment of love, the most loving person that has ever and will ever exist, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus was the embodiment of what it means to love. He defines and shows us what love is really about. He didn't just talk about love. He showed love. He spent time with people. He invested in them. He healed them. He fed them. He he told them the truth about their existence. He gave them hope. He died for us. So when we talk about love, we've got to start our conversation with Jesus Christ. We've got to start it with God. And of course, even near the end of his life, particularly within the gospel account of John, he talks a lot about love. Before he 
leaves and, and uh, is crucified and resurrects, resurrected and ascended to heaven, the final command, one of His final commands is John 13, 34 and 35, I want you to love each other as I have loved you. And as I think about that commandment and that idea and that concept and where we are in our nation right now, we need that more than ever. We need to be talking about love more than ever. We need to understand love more fully, maybe than we ever have before. But most certainly now, in this moment in history as the church, when we have so many forces and, and voices and, and issues that are threatening to divide us, that are encouraging us to act in an unloving way, we need to have that discussion. And so what greater place to go as we're talking about 1 Corinthians, then the great love chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to see what the Apostle Paul, by the power of the Spirit, has to say about love. And so I want you to be opening your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That's where we'll be spending some time together. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version if you want to follow along a little bit easier. And as we do that, we just want to talk about three distinct aspects of love. Three, so I'm, I'm making it easy for you. I'm pulling the typical, the, the, the typical uh, preacher points here. We're going to have three points. They're all going to start with P. A little bit of alliteration. I don't always use alliteration, but I thought it was appropriate here. Number one, we're going to talk about the priority that love plays in your life. And then after discussing that, we're going to talk about the practice of love. What does love look like? How does love act? And then we're going to talk about the permanence of love in the world, and in your life in particular. So as we think about that, let's look first at the priority that love plays in verses 1 through 3. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I, have, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. After reading those verses, I don't think it would be an overemphasis or an overcharacterization to say that love is the most important attribute in your life as a Christian. Now that, that's pretty astounding to say because we might say it would be faith or we might say it would be truth. And, and those things are extremely valuable. Uh, they're, they're important. They're necessary. But Paul's point here is that you can have a variety of other elements and attributes in your life. Uh, you can do a lot of other good things in your life. But if you don't have love, they're vain and they're, they're pointless. Think about for just a moment what he says in verse 1 about speaking in the tongues of men and of angels. Wouldn't that be incredible if you could speak with the tongues of angels? Uh, you, can, you, could, you could know all kinds of dialects. And, and the idea here is to spread the gospel. You could learn these, these, these foreign languages in order to be able to spread the gospel to other people. But, but if you're not doing it out of love, he said, then it's just like a noisy gong or a, or a clanging cymbal. And so the idea here is, using the idea of instrumentation, is if you have this language that you know 
in order to spread the gospel. And love is your motivating force behind it. And, and so those two things are wedded together. It's like someone who has expertly learned an instrument. Someone who has taken years of practice and devoted themselves to the violin or the piano. And it's, it's so well done, it's so intricate, and it creates beauty and truth. That's what happens when your skill set meets up with love. But when you only have the skill set, but you don't have love, it's like someone just getting a cymbal and just banging them over and over and over and over again. There's, there's no real beauty to it. There's no complexity. It's just an annoying, clanging noise. That's what happens when you don't have love. But you do have a particular skill set. Then he goes on to say, if I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Now that's an incredible statement to me, and, and, and maybe one that we struggle with the most, because now he's talking about prophetic powers, truth, and, and faith that even can remove mountains. But Paul says, if it's not motivated, if it's, if it's not embedded and grounded in love, really you are nothing. Now, he's talking about identity there. I am nothing. Because what we know, our intellect, our intellect and our power and our abilities plays a big part in how we view ourselves as people. And he says, if your abilities and your knowledge shape how you view yourself, but love doesn't shape how you view yourself, love doesn't play an important part in who you are, then really you are nothing. Now, if you turn just a few chapters back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul has a little bit to say about love and knowledge and how while those two things are not diametrically opposed by any means, they can conflict with each other if not placed with a proper emphasis. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now notice what he says here. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know it as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, take a minute to realize what Paul is saying here. In the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he's talking about people who have a knowledge that idols really aren't anything. Uh, they, they really aren't gods, as some people think that they are. And so if you eat meat that was offered to them in worship, well, it's not really worship because they're not really gods. And Paul said, logically, that makes sense. And technically, you're right. But what was happening was that individuals were seeing the boldness of other Christians uh, that were eating meat offered to idols, and, and they were gaining confidence, even though they had questions and doubts, and eating that meat themselves, they had come out of idolatry, uh, idolatrous backgrounds, and then they were subsequently violating their own conscience because they were seeing the boldness based on the knowledge of these other Christians. And so Paul's point is this. Your knowledge about these things is technically true, but it's not founded in love for your brother. And so all that it is doing is serving you. It's only serving your interest. It's puffing you up and it's making you feel good about who you are. But it's doing nothing to actually serve your brother. In fact, it's hurting them. So knowledge, if it's not placed within its proper context, 
can puff you up. How many people do we know who have, who have advanced degrees and they look down upon other people? Now, listen, I'm not anti-academic. Uh, I, 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 I have uh, degrees and, and I'm pursuing a degree right now in, in graduate study, so I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that, especially within the context of the church, if academic degrees and knowledge are not being sought for the purpose of serving the church and serving God, then there is a great temptation to elevate and to exalt us as people. Our, our nature and the sin that we struggle with can greatly influence that. And so he says, but love builds up. Love uses the knowledge that we have to build up other people, to help other people. In fact, that's what he says in verse 2. If anyone thinks that he knows something, he does not yet know it as he should know. What in the world is Paul saying there? He's saying, if you really think you're sitting back, man, I've got this. I know this. And that's all that you're using it for is to know it. That's the end in and of itself. But it's not being used to help and to serve other people. He says you don't really understand the purpose of knowledge because the purpose of knowledge is not just to make you feel good about yourself and to elevate you, but to help other people to know certain things and to know God more fully. And so that's why we can turn to 1 Corinthians 13. And Paul says, listen, if you have knowledge, that's good. But if it's not founded in love, it doesn't do you good and it doesn't do anyone else good. And then he goes on in verse 3 to make this radical claim that, and this is, this is mind-blowing, that you can literally set your body on fire for God and if it's not done out of love, then it's pointless. Now here we're getting to the ultimate sacrifice, a martyr being burned at the stake for the cause of Christ, and yet it's not done out of love for God and for the brethren and for others, then really it's, it's pointless. Now that is a startling, startling statement. Because what Paul is saying here is that Christians can make great sacrifices in devotion to God, but the motivation for it and the, the movement and the desire behind it matters just as much. There have been Christians throughout the ages who have made great contributions and great sacrifices for the church. But you soon discover that those contributions weren't made to serve the church or to serve God, but rather they were made to elevate themselves. Think, for example, of Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. You have Christians before Ananias and Sapphira, like Barnabas in Acts chapter 4, who were giving over their means in order to serve the church. But Ananias and Sapphira, they were giving something, but it wasn't for the service of the church. It was for the service of themselves, and they were subsequently punished because of that. So great sacrifice needs great love. Those two things must come together. So this is the priority. Is love... A priority in your life. Are you, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 1, are you pursuing love? Is love something that is a priority in your life? What if we dedicated ourselves as Christians to saying, you know what, not just I'm going to know the Bible better, and that's important, but I want to learn how to love better. I, I, I want to learn how to love my brother in Christ more fully and completely. I've known of churches throughout the years, and the short time that I've been on this earth, was raised in the church. I've known of churches that are full of knowledge, but empty of love. I've known of congregations that are full of, 
of love, but empty of knowledge. And that certainly is not what we want either. We want our love to grow in knowledge and discernment. Paul talks about that in Philippians 1, 9 through 10. But we must have this priority of pursuing love in which we are wanting to learn to know how to love God and to love our fellow man and our brethren more fully. Okay, so now let's move on to our second point. The practice of love. And this is just as important as the priority of love. Because a lot of times we like to think (laughs) that we know how to love people, right? And in fact, if people say, you don't really love me, when we feel like we have been showing them love, we get offended. Because what do you mean I haven't loved you? There was a book that was written several years ago called The The Love Languages. The five, I believe it's the five love language. I read it a few years back. Great book. A lot of good stuff in there. But the whole idea behind it I believe it was written by Gary Chapman. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm remembering it correctly, maybe I'm not. But the whole idea was that people give and receive love in different ways. And if you're not speaking their love language, they might not understand love as it should be accepted by you or given by you or the, how they receive it. And I think that helps us to understand that, that there's a particular language that love has. And so let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13 once again and, and see what Paul has to say about what's the, the language of love. Verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Let's go ahead and stop there. There's a lot here to unpack, but I just want us to to focus a few moments on a couple of things. Uh, Number one, Paul begins by saying love is patient and kind. Love is patient and kind. He goes on later to say it's, it's not irritable, it's not resentful, it's not rude. And you think to yourself, well, <laughs> why, why does Paul have to point that out? I mean, isn't that obvious that love is kind and not rude or uh, resentful or irritable? Maybe. But how many times have we justified rude and unfeeling comments based upon the fact that we love somebody, Right? Uh, we say something hurtful to someone, and then they say, why would you say that to me? That, that hurts. Well, it's because I love you. I wouldn't tell you this if I didn't love you. Now, love does demand truth. If I love somebody, and, and they're in a, a sinful situation, and, and, they're, and they're going down a path that is just going to destroy them, and hurt them, and harm them, if I genuinely love them, then I need to come to them and say, brother, sister, Whoever it is, I love you and I'm concerned about you and I'm worried about you. What you're doing isn't right and the way that you're living isn't right. That's what Paul says. It rejoices in truth and not in wrongdoing. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But how do I go about doing that? And and can I genuinely say that the motives behind some of these rude and unfeeling comments are really love? Or is it just to make myself feel justified in how I'm dealing with this person or or making myself feel better about my own life as I'm attacking someone else. It's kind. It's patient. The old King James says, long-suffering. I love that word because it really brings the idea of what 
the Scripture means when it says patience. Love suffers long. Now, most of us are okay as Christians with suffering for a little bit, with putting up with somebody and their weaknesses and their failings for a little bit. (laughs) But how many of us are willing to suffer long with people to endure their failings, their weaknesses, their disappointments? But let me tell you something. Our love and Paul's understanding of love, of course, is based on God's love for us. God is love, 1 John 4 and verse 8. And if we're going to understand love, we've got to know God. That's the whole basis of this entire discussion. And so when I think about that and me having to put up with people, I think before we dwell too long on the failings of others towards us, we first need to dwell a little bit longer on how often we have failed God and He has put up with us. Do you want God to suffer a little or suffer long with you in His patience and His dealings and His love with you as His child? I mean, I think if we're being honest, we, we, we know the answer to that, right? So love isn't uh, uh, arrogant. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. Love doesn't act arrogantly towards people. Again, how many people say, I love you, but they're the most arrogant, self-exalting, self-ambitious people that you've ever seen. There's no humility about how they handle difficult situations with you. It's just all about them. He says, that's not how love acts. That's not how love is. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's my way or the highway, but I love you. Love is willing to listen. It's willing to listen to the different perspectives of other people. It has an open ear and a compassionate heart. And this is an important one that he says here in 1 Corinthians 13. Love believes and love hopes all things. Now, does that mean that love is naive, that it just believes whatever anybody says? No, that's not what he's saying. But what it is saying, and what he is saying, is that love assumes the best, and it hopes for the best. It doesn't assume ulterior motives. It doesn't uh, assume bad character. If you love somebody, you're really hoping for the best for them, and you're assuming the best. It gives people the benefit of the doubt. That's what loving people do. That's what love does. In fact, when we think about individuals who we think love us, that's what we think about. We know that they know our hearts. And we trust that their judgments of us are going to be based upon that. That they know who we are. That they give us the benefit of the doubt. And if you have a friend or a loved one that does that for you, uh, you truly are a blessed person. Now this is what how love really acts. We can't make up our own definition of love, Right? I mean, we, we can't make up a definition of love that isn't based upon what God says is love because He is the very foundation of love. He shows us how to love and how love acts. And what I mean by that is we see within our world today this kind of different definition of love to where, for example, if someone's living in a sinful lifestyle, a, a lifestyle that's contrary to God's Word, and if you come to them and tell them, friend, I, I love you and I care about you, but what you're doing is, is wrong and it's against the Word of God and and, and I want you to be saved, that's viewed as hateful. That's viewed as unloving. But if you affirm that relationship, whether it's a, a sexual union or, or some type of relationship that is against the will of God, and if you affirm that relationship and you say, good, you know, you pursue that, even though it's against God's will, that's considered what is loving. But not according to Paul. According to Paul, love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. It rejoices in truth. And so, in fact, 
the most loving thing that I can do for someone, and sometimes the most difficult, is to talk to them about their sin. To do what I can to encourage them and to help them out of their sin. To show them that the lifestyle that they're living is not in accordance with the will of God. And if they don't turn back, there's going to be judgment for that. And, but God loves them and wants them to change. That's the most loving and most difficult thing that I can do at times. It's the parent who has to have the difficult talk with their child. It's the, the friend that has to have that difficult talk with their friend. Whatever it may be, this is the practice of love. And this is how love is shown. We can't make up our own definition, and we can't practice it in a way and say, well, this is loving. No, Paul says this is what love is. Now, thirdly, let's look at the permanence of love. The permanence of love. Turn, if you will, back to 1 Corinthians 13, if you moved your page like I did. Let's start in verse 9. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The trifecta of the abundant life in Jesus. Faith, hope, and love. Living in faith, looking forward in hope, and acting and living in love. That is the trifecta of the abundant life in Christ Jesus. But here Paul says the most abiding thing, the most permanent thing, the preeminent thing is love. It's a permanent fixture in the entire cosmos because of who God is at His heart. Now I want you to understand what we're saying here and what this whole lesson is about. I'm not just trying to get you to do loving things, although that's important as we just looked at in the previous point. I'm not just trying to get you to do loving things, and Scripture's not just trying you to, to get you to do loving things. It's trying to convince you to be transformed into a loving person. It's not just about what you do. It's about who you are. But that only comes by the power of the gospel. It only comes by the power of God Himself. Only He can regenerate me and make me new and give me the loving heart that I need. I need to be born again to a love of the brotherhood. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. That's what I need in my life. I need God to work in my life but also requires intentional action on my part, that I want to be every day a more loving, sacrificial, self-giving love, that type of person. That's who I want to be. Not just what I do, but who I am. We talked about that at the beginning of the lesson. Mr. Rogers. People were drawn to him, not simply because he did loving things, but because they could see within him that he was a loving and genuine and caring person. And that's what we're wanting to be. We're wanting to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, the most loving person that has ever existed on the face of the earth. We want to be more like Jesus so that people can see Jesus in us. We want to help people to see love and care within us. But it has to be defined in the way that Paul talks about it, the Spirit talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Are you that type of person? Are you following the image of Christ in that way? Because the greatest of these is love. That's, that's what it's all about. That's what you have to give your life to, to pursue it, to practice it, and allow it to be a permanent fixture in your life. I'm so thankful that I had the opportunity to talk to you just briefly about these things, and I pray that they've challenged and helped you in some way, 
I hope that I can meet you in the future and that we can get to know each other a little bit better. But until then, may the grace and the love of our God and our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of His Spirit be with you all.